0: Thanks for downloading this episode of Historic Racing News. It's for personal use only and must not be broadcast, reproduced or used in any form without permission.
1: Tell your friends they can get their own copy by searching for Historic Racing News wherever they get their podcasts.
2: Welcome to the Historic Racing News radio show.
3: Welcome to the second part of our Jaguars in Competition special. The first part, Paul Jurd looked at the early days of Jaguar. Jim Roller told us about the Jaguars entered by Briggs Cunningham. And Joe Bradley brought us up to speed with one of Jaguar's more unlikely escapades. And that is their try into Formula One. This month we'll be talking to one of the most illustrious pilots of Bob Thulis's Jaguar XJR5 series cars, and that's Bill Adam. And we couldn't do a show about Jaguar without talking about Tom Wilkinshaw Racing. Joe Bradley finds out about the fearsome V12 E-Type from Rob Beer, who looks after it, and we look at the shenanigans behind the XJR15 mini-series as well. Finally, we'll take a look at a series which, until very recently... never heard of called Fast Masters. The whole Group C and IMSA programs of the 80s and 90s were inevitably wrapped up with Tom Walkinshaw Racing, but it wasn't Tom Walkinshaw who started the project. In 1983, Bob Tullius, the renowned American driver and team owner of Group 44, agreed a project with Jaguar which would become a success ultimately on both sides of the Atlantic, and the catalyst for what was the whole Jaguar sports car involvement from the mid-80s through to the mid-90s. A car was designed by and built by by Fabcar in, in the US and the Coventry V12 was shoehorned into the back of it and Tullius recruited the esteemed driver Bill Adam as his co-driver. But Jim, I think Group 44 had a Jaguar involvement before then?
2: Well, it certainly did, Paul. Bob Tullius was uh, a man who who raced E-types in the SCCA's uh, Trans Am series. And so he had already a bit of a relationship with Coventry. And in uh, 1968, when they wanted to start developing a car that would replace the E-Type, uh, the XJS was was born, and it actually raced first in the United States. Uh, Lord Stokes, who was uh, then uh, the, the man in charge of British Leland, had shown little um, interest in having the XJS race on the track in Europe. But in the United States, a guy by the name of Michael Dale, uh, he was president of sales in the United States, He was a big supporter of racing and Tullius. So when the head office didn't want to see the XJS uh, out there, Dale worked closely with Tullius and started the Group 44 XJS program. Now, that car was a car that debuted in uh, 1976 at Mosport. He he, uh, had oil temperature trouble after leading the first half of the race. Uh, They finished fourth uh, in Daytona uh, in the – again, they were running up front uh, and then had high temperatures. They were running fourth when they couldn't continue because of high temperatures. And it wasn't until 1982 that uh, the XJS was was okay to run in Europe in Group A specs. Uh, Over the uh, span from the time that Tilia started the XJS program – to when the um, prototype program came into came into being. The car won, he raced the car 30 times. He won three outright and 12 Category 1 victories in Trans Am. And so the car was very successful here in the United States, uh, racing with uh, the V12 uh, engine that everybody uh, uh, knew was... Uh, Famous part of the uh, it was kind of the same onward development from what the what the E type had. Interestingly, the the prototype was called the XJR five, and that was penned by Lee Dykstra, the famous American designer. And interesting, this little interesting bit of trivia: the final XJS that raced in the United States was actually a tube frame car that was constructed for IMSA spec, uh, as opposed to Trans Am spec. And that car was actually dubbed the XJR4, (laughs) even though it was, (laughs) it had the XJS uh, body shell, uh, but it was the forerunner to the XJR5. Um, The... um, victories that Tullius had with the XJS uh, allowed him to be the uh, first recipient of Sir William Lyons International Jaguar Trophy for contribution to the brand. And so his his history with Jaguar is is very deep. And probably the most famous part of it is that beautiful XJR5 that Lee Dykstra uh, penned Fabcar built. It had the V12 engine. And was designed specifically for IMSA's GTP regulations, which started in 1980 and 81.
3: You know, although we are all emotionally tied up with 1988 at Le Mans and everything that goes with it, for me those Group 44 cars were much better looking than the TWR cars ever were. They they just looked superb,
2: didn't they? Ooh. Oh, they 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 really did. Uh, And one of the things that Tullius was famous for in the United States was he he was kind of the forerunner to Roger Penske and that all the guys wore white uniforms. The cars were that beautiful white and green. Everything was turned out. You could have eaten off the off the interior of those cars when they were ready to start the race and that sort of stuff. The yeah. the uh, you know, in the early days you had Lofty England who was uh the engineering guy behind uh or a mechanical guy behind uh some of the D types and 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 mm-hmm. the, the early cars. Well they had Lanky Fouché and Brian know we, we we see your Lofty and raise you a Lanky. And um <laughs> was those- that
3: coincidence?
2: Uh, yes, totally coincidence, yeah. Lanky Fouché, it was his, his nickname. And um, Brian Firstino was actually a driver engineer who raced a lot with Tilius in the Trans Am days. They transitioned to be kind of uh, crew chief and chief mechanic for the Group 44 cars, and they were kind of the unsung heroes of that operation.
3: And that's, that's a, an interesting insight into that because... Uh, certainly this side of, of the water um, things like Trans Am yeah we kind of understand it but we don't have something immediately equivalent and except in and I don't want to be disparaging but except in club racing we don't see much in the way of tube frame cars um, here and so yeah to hear about that and the tube frame XJR4 I think is a is a fascinating one but we, uh, we caught up with one of the most illustrious pilots of Bob Tullius' Jaguar XJR5 series cars. And that's Bill Adam.
2: Joining us now is a man who I met back when he was racing Corvettes in the Am, Trans- <laughs> And actually competing against Bob Tullius. Uh, and his uh, Jaguar, I guess it was probably the XJS back then. Um, yeah, it was. Uh, what what was that
4: like It was fun i I mean um we always viewed Bob as the pinnacle of of the sport in the relative class that we were running, and uh kind of a as a gauge on how successful we were becoming. I say we in that I had a very good friend who wanted to be a crew chief, didn't want to drive at all, and I didn't want to be a crew chief, so we bought this old car and he was responsible for fixing it up and we used uh bob tullius and the xjs as a uh as a marker
2: ah okay okay well how did a, a kind of died in the little corvette guy end up getting wooed to go uh was it a uh, uh join them kind of thing uh can't beat him, join them or was it was it just uh, the right opportunity at the right time
4: Well, it it was the the can't beat him, join him, Uh, and it was one of those rare dreams come true, Jim, that uh, I had raced against Bob at my home track, which was Mosport, and we had a a one-hour Trans Am race that uh, we we had this monumental battle for 55 minutes where I led him for 55 out of the 60-minute race. And then had an exhaust header crack, and he got by with just a couple laps to go and won the race. But very kindly, came down afterwards and said, "Good job, you know, for a for an amateur team, you guys did a wonderful job." And blah blah. And then two weeks later, we met up again at Mont for a, a one hour sprint race, and I beat him there. And uh, he came down and said, "Should I ever have the opportunity to run a two car team, I'm going to give you a call." And I was brought up with my Scottish upbringing in that, uh, you know, be realistic here. He's he's just saying nice things to you. And uh, lo and behold, 1979, I think it was, Boxing Day in Canada, which is December 26th, Bob Tullius phoned me up and said, hi, this is Bob Tullius. Um what are you doing next year? And I thought it was a joke at first. And I was kind of sarcastic because I thought it was one of my friends just playing a joke. And then I had the <laughs> sickening feeling like, oh, Uh-oh. dear God, you <laughs> just blew your chance, you idiot. And he was very kind and realized. He said, no, no, I know this opportunity doesn't come along but once in a lifetime. And uh, how would you like to, instead of racing against me next year, race for me. And that was my dream come true, Jim.
2: Wow. Wow. What a, what a great story. What a great story. Oh. Now, was that
4: was that in what the in the
2: XJS tube frame car, the the what they called the uh, I guess what uh, uh, XJR four was was that in that or was this to do the uh, the, the, the GTP car, the XJR five?
4: Actually, in 1980, my, my first year with Group 44 was in the TR8s.
2: Oh, that's right.
4: That's right. Yeah. Completely forget. and, that, that's, uh, everybody
2: forgets that he ran that TR8. Well,
4: I forget that he ran that, too, and not, not everybody. But, oh, uh, they were wonderful, too. God, just incredible.
2: So how did the uh, – so you, so you joined the team. You guys have, 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 as you said, you raced the TR8s. How did the uh, – did the prototype come about the GTP car? What was the what was the behind the scenes machinations of of how that all came together?
4: Well, we we ran the TR8 through the '80 season uh, and partway through '81, and then switched over to the tube frame uh, XJS. But Bob always wanted to be the big dog and had spoken to Jaguar about it, and they said, "Yep, go ahead." So. He hired Lee Dykstra, a noted American designer, very, very bright young man, to design the XJR5. And uh, that was unveiled midway through 82 mm-hmm. uh, at Road America, Wisconsin. And just a stunningly beautiful car. Oh, my God. I was pinching myself every time I just even looked at it. Never mind get in to drive it. It was it's like one of these things that, you know, if Kate Beckinsale called you up and say, <laughs> I, I, I pick you. Well, this was like, oh, Lord, was this good? And so we did that through 82. And then we ran that car through uh, the balance of the year and then 83 and 84. And it was it was just simply a magical car to me. Like I say, my my heart just did a, a handstand every time I looked at it or, or listened to it. God, it was beautiful sound.
2: What was the uh, what was it like competing with that car against the 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 Porsches? Um, you guys you guys had a couple of years uh before the the 962 really came on the scene and and uh, found its legs, uh, for lack of a better term. What was what was it like competing in IMSA in that car?
4: Yeah, it was um, we actually missed opportunities with it because Bob is a brilliant man in so many aspects, but he is also an extremely stubborn man. Uh, an example of that is when the car was built, you could run a six liter motor, whether that's a Chevrolet or a Ford or, or a V12 Jaguar. And Bob had been running the 5.3 liter all those years. And he said, nope, good enough. Same thing with the seating that we used in the, in the GTP car. We took the seat directly out of the TR8, directly out of the XJS, and that was our seat in the GTP car. Bob would go, good enough. Well, when things started getting to the point where they they tried to up the horsepower a little bit, we started going through head gaskets, and we lost, God, Lord, six, eight races maybe because Mm -hmm. of the head gasket failure Mm -hmm. until finally uh, Lanky, who was building our motors, He O-ringed the the cylinder head, and that took care of that problem, but we should have dominated 1983 and 1984, and we didn't because of these silly little failures. Uh, The Porsches had a bunch more horsepower. At very best, out of the 5.3 liter, we were getting maybe 530 horses, and then out of the 6 liter, we might have been just over the 600 mark. The 9... Five six that we're up against a couple of times before they outlawed that and, and made the 962 the mandatory car for the extra safety of the wheelbase, keeping your feet safe. The 962s, the good ones, had over 800. So when we were on a, a long, fast track, they would kill us down the straights. Uh, under braking, the jag was pretty good. Uh, turn into corners, it was excellent. And same thing, putting the power down, we actually could do better than the Porsches because they were going back and forth as to whether a uh, a lock differential was the thing to have a spool. Uh, or, uh, I remember uh, that, I remember that. Yeah, I remember all those. And uh, so they couldn't quite put the power down as well as we could. But once they got straightened out and saw where they wanted to go, you just, you watched them disappear in the distance and it was like, oh, geez, I would kill for that horsepower. <laughs> dork is your friend oh yes
2: <laughs> um i joked with the guys uh that uh, lofty england was uh, the one of the men but kind of unsung heroes of the of the d types and c types and i said well in america we saw your your lofty and raised you a lanky um how how yeah. important <laughs> were were uh, were lanky fouché and brian first and now? uh to the success of of that program brian first and now kind of being uh what was it was he like the crew chief and Lanky like was the car chief uh, if we would use modern parlance, or how, how did that breakdown work and how important were they uh to be the unsung heroes of that program
4: yeah that that's a pretty good way to break them down and describe them that that's very accurate jim and in a word they were invaluable i mean Can't give them enough credit. Uh, Bob had his own ideas on doing things, uh, which sometimes got to be tremendously frustrating for those fellows. And for me, too. Uh, He was not the easiest guy in the world to race with and race for. Uh, But Lanky and Brian, oh, my God, they were great. Lanky came from being the chief mechanic on Air Force One and you don't get that job without having some pretty serious credentials. Nothing his big attention then. To, Oh no. It's <laughs> yeah. wow. attention to detail <laughs> as well as Brian's attention to detail. Uh, perfect example, 1980, my my first year with the team. We were at Sebring and uh, we had qualified pretty well in the TR8 in our in our GT class, GTO class, and I came to the race track that morning at Oh, gosh, whatever, seven or eight o'clock in the morning. And there is this long, long strip of white paper laid out next to the car. And Brian had the alternator completely disassembled bit by bit by bit by bit down this long piece of paper. I said, what's wrong, Brian? Like, it was perfect. There was nothing wrong with the lighting last night. He said, oh, I know. I just wanted to take it apart and see how. What was wearing just that tiny little bit extra, because we've never run this many headlights on the car. And of course, he put it back together perfectly, and we went on to win the race. But he scared the devil out of me. Oh, God, why touch something if it's not broken?
2: <laughs> well, to make sure it's not done a break, isn't that? Uh, wow, that ah. is that is a that's a perfect perfect example of that. What was this car? Now you you in your career. Um, had the opportunity to drive the, the Jaguar. You drove Porsche 962s. Well, well, first, before we get to that, what was the Jaguar like at Le Mans? Was the horsepower uh, a, a problem because of the long straightaway? What What was that car? Could you make up anything with the handling? What was that car like at Le Mans?
4: Well, I, I'd only be guessing, Jim, because I oh, actually Oh, I thought left- you drove it at Le Mans. Yeah, no, never uh, did. Okay. That was, uh, I left the team just shortly before that. So uh, I okay. really don't know, but I can only imagine it was a massive handicap. Yeah. It it was just huge because you know yourself at, at Le Mans, you've got these never ending straights and the Jag would, it could reach a terminal speed that Dijkstra had designed that thing with a lot of built in downforce, which you couldn't take out the size of the tunnels and, and everything else, that you could flatten things right out. And eventually, you're just simply going to run out of horsepower to push it any faster, where the Porsche could put on different rear body work, making that low rear wing setup, and then flatten the wing. and So they had a big aerodynamic advantage on picking up speed, which I think would... I I, I can't remember what the lap times were. I was still paying attention, because, of course, this was my, my first love. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, my my first love in the P cars so I, I always had to watch and see how my old co-driver Brian Redmond, was doing and i just i missed the devil out of him he he was yeah. he will always be number 1 with me in my heart
2: yeah well and you you, you guys had a, a heck of a lineup i mean bob was 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 no slouch as you say a bit set in his ways and a, and a bit old fashioned sometimes but you had hurley haywood you had you you had brian Redmond um it was it was quite a cast of characters you had there
4: oh it was i mean i always looked at 1984 that the start of the season actually began in 83 uh jaguar had rented daytona for a test for us to prepare for the 24 hour bob really wanted to win that race and so we were down there and bob came over to me one morning and he said uh bill i i've got some news um you and I won't be driving together next season, and I was like, "Oh God, he's going to fire me! What, what, what did I do wrong?" And he, he said, uh, "I'm splitting us up, and I'm putting you with Brian Redman." It's like, "Oh good darn!" God. Yeah, here's the Kate uh, Beckinsale again. Like, "Oh, do I have to?" <laughs> so, I was sitting in the car in the pit lane at Daytona at one point. Uh, we had started our test, and uh, Brian arrived at the track. Now, I had watched Brian for years at Mosport, at Watkins Glen, and different tracks close to where I lived in, in Canada. Always admired the man. He was just, just brilliantly smooth and blindingly fast, just everything you could ask for in a drive, and didn't make mistakes. And Brian walks over to the car as I'm sitting in it and kind of squats down on his haunches, and the, the door was up on the Jag, and he said, Good morning, Bill. My name is Brian Rickman And he put his hand out for me to shake it. And I felt like saying, The world knows who you are. Yet you have this wonderful humility. Ah, I, I, So I was I was honored beyond words driving with them. And we had s- such fun together. Just a magical, wonderful, wonderful man.
2: He had a certain sympathy for the car, too, didn't he?
4: Quite remarkable, Jim. One of the first things he said that particular morning of when we first met was, uh, "We were sitting inside the motorhome having a drink, of something not not a drink, drink, but a uh, a, a liquid refreshment of Kool Aid or something like this." And he comes over and he says, "Bill, um, do you use the clutch when you shift?" And I, I first thought it's a trick. And like he's just he wants to see what I'm doing, and I said yes, Brian, every shift, I'm very careful. And he said, don't. I thought, what? He said, just just simply going from full throttle back off to like 40% and pull the lever back when you're ready. And the same thing when you're when you're ready to downshift, just slightly depress the gas as if you're rolling into a heel-toe position where you're just barely touching the throttle and then push the lever into the slot you want for the downshifts. So, lanky had been monitoring gearbox temperatures and whatever we had been running when i started doing it the way brian suggested which didn't destroy the gearboxes thought it would the very first time i tried it i was sure this thing was going to scramble itself you're expecting
2: grind me a pound oh
4: i i was (laughs) expecting grind me a a kilo it's just like oh my god (laughs) here we go and it just went click into the next gear it's like wow it's wonderful and then click the next gear and we come in and we had lowered the gearbox temperature by over 20 degrees by doing it his way. Instead of when you normally use a clutch with a Hewland, you get this little grrrt, just yeah, you know yeah. a couple of teeth just making that little tiny feel. But, of course, Brian had learned this over the year and uh, how wonderful to have his experience and his knowledge telling me things to make us to make me a, a better driver.
2: Were you basically matching the revs? I mean, is that what was, what was happening? You're matching the revs and that allows the, the cogs to, to, to click into place without that little click.
4: I I think so, Jim. Yeah. Okay. That's what it was. And it's quite intimidating to try because like I (laughs) said, if you do it on a street car, everything in your fiber tells you you're going to grind. And then your passengers are going to say, Oh, good job. Nicely done, idiot. And, and, no, nope, on the race car, it was beautiful. It was so nice to the point that I actually preferred the Hewland gearbox over driving the Porsche 962, which is a synchromesh gearbox. Okay. And in the Porsche, the synchros would slow down your shifts just a tiny little bit. The Jag, lightning fast when you would do it that way.
2: Nah, because the synchromesh is actually doing the matching the revs
4: work for you, isn't it? Yeah. And yeah. so you have to allow things yeah. to speed up. Just just yeah. that brief yeah, just delay.
2: That, just that microsecond. Yeah.
4: Yeah.
2: Now you you talked about driving the 962. You also drove that frightening beast of a march with a Buick. That lump of a Buick in the back of it that made uh, uh I don't know how many horsepower, but I think it probably had a comment. <laughs> What? What? How did the How did the Jag uh, uh, compare uh, to uh, some of those other cars that you that you drove?
4: Well, even though the the March Buick was a newer car, uh, it was a 1985 chassis, an 85 yep, yep. G. They called it. The Jag was better in every single respect. Uh, the only thing that made that the, the March quick was the buick engine that little v6 turbo that was built by uh mclaren engineering mm-hmm. and the first time we tested that car was at willow springs in california and it was like i came back in the pits at one point and the, the two mechanics one was a, a guy oh i remember them both you you probably remember them from from formula atlantic days jim wiley mccoy
2: oh good lord
4: and tom clausler <laughs> <laughs> That's too juna-
2: Talk about a blast from the past. Yeah, so <laughs> yeah. They were so both
4: working that. for McLaren Engineering. Oh, wow. And, okay. Uh, I came in, and I'm sure my eyeballs were huge. I couldn't believe the power of this thing. And I, I came up, to, and Tom put the door up, and he's oh, how are the temperature is here, there. Then I said, "How much power does this thing have?" And he said, "Is there anything wrong?" And I said, "No, it's incredible." And he said, "So it's enough." I said, yeah, how much? And he slammed the door. And for the longest time, he wouldn't tell me. Well, in the press kits, it said uh, 850 horses. Oh, bull. It it had 850 horses on the starter motor. Uh, He once told me in a a moment of absolute honesty that our Daytona motor, when John Paul Jr. and I were together, Mm -hmm. that they had built for an endurance engine it came off the dyno at a thousand and five.
2: <laughs> like I said, it's our, common. <laughs> uh,
4: our our sprint motors that we once ran at Watkins Glen that I was afraid to run full boost. Quite honestly, I, and I'm not exaggerating, I was afraid. It, and they were just over 1,200 horsepower.
2: Wow! wow. Awesome. Well, well. In, in in closing of our our, our Jaguar's uh, special here, let's uh, bring it back to the the point. What is your favorite? memory of of driving the XJR5?
4: Well, you know, I, I guess I have a couple that, uh, one was at MoSport that year, and from the very first time I watched a race at MoSport, I always thought how wonderful, how truly magical it must be to win in front of the home Canadian crowd. And that year, it was a six-hour-long race, uh, and Bob and I won it. And taking that final lap around the track with all the Canadian fans waving at me and cheering, we were all one. And then pulling into victory circle, it, it just gave me goosebumps. I, I'll never forget it. The other memory of the Jag was same year at Lime Rock, Connecticut, Mm-hmm. A track that Bob didn't particularly like, so it was a, uh, I think it was a three-race heat that they'd broken up.
2: Yes, and yeah, it was. Yep.
4: He gave me the car for two of the three, and I won both my heats, so that, that gave us the automatic win for the day. But at one point, I'm sitting on the grid with the door up, and along comes a uh, a flagger, a track worker, and he's, of course, like everybody else, admiring the car. And was asking a few questions very quietly to me, didn't want to interrupt me. And he said, oh, my God, you, you're so lucky. He said, well, best of luck today and, and keep the shiny side up. And I looked out and I said, have you looked underneath the car? And he stared at me and he bent down beside the door. And, of course, the bottom of the car was all freshly painted and glittering. And he came up and his, his face was a little bit white and he said, I didn't mean that. I'm, I'm sorry. I didn't mean. I said, no, no, I know what you meant, but I just wanted to show you the care and, and pride that this team has in making this car perfect.
2: That is outstanding and not a uh, a better way to to close this out. Thank you very much, Bill Adam, for your reflections on the Tullius Racing Program um, and on Uh, The XGR 5 I tell you, the one thing that I had told the guys earlier, the one thing about the Tilius operation, I never understood how they kept the uniforms so white. (laughs) 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 That's true. Yeah, thank you very much for your time. And uh, I look forward to, to chatting with you again real soon. You take care.
4: A pleasure, Jim.
2: The Historic Racing News Radio Show.
3: TWR are obviously famous for their Le Mans exploits and everything that went with that. And we've heard a bit about the really difficult times for that broadspeed car. But there was a sort of interim middle ground early on because TWR's first foray into the world of Jaguar was not with prototypes. It was with the XJS. And Joe, you've had a
5: a look at this and um, got some information You know what? Uh, I think we forget that Tom Walkinshaw was a very, very capable race driver uh, back in his day. Not only was he a team owner and a race engineer and a a car builder, etc. He was a very, very competent peddler. And it was with his own team back in 1982 that he first entered uh, a team of XGS Jaguars, um, V12 engines, absolute beast, he ended up putting out just over 450 brake horsepower uh, back in the early 80s, or the mid-80s, I should say. But in 82, he he entered the the European Touring Car Championship. Uh, The car, for me, should never have been in a Touring Car Championship. It's an XGS. It's a sports car. It was barely a four-seater. So, for me, um, I was like, (laughs) I've, I've always struggled with an XGS in a Touring Car Championship. However... The FIA's Group A Touring Car Rules allowed the XGS, and uh, Tom Walkinshaw saw it as a great opportunity to go racing, and he did it very, very successfully. He was up against, at the time, he would have been up against BMW uh, 530s, Alfa Romeo GTV 6s. Um, he was up against teams like Eggenberg, Eggenberger Motorsport. Um, they ended up racing against the Volvo 240Ts in that. Uh, 1980s period. Um, he had drivers such as Win Percy, Hans Heyer. Um, they won races. Um, in fact, the XGS won its first race of the 82 season at the Bruneau circuit in uh, which would then have been Czechoslovakia rather than the Czech Republic. Um, it's in the Czech Republic now, but it's not the Bruneau circuit that we would race on today. It's the it's the older Bruneau road course, which is absolutely daunting. It is a fast, fast road through villages and the like. And having retraced that road course that they used in the 80s, it was the, the sight of these cars blasting through villages, flat out through S-bends, just skirting curbs and garden fences. Literally, these cars were so visceral in how they performed and it was perhaps you know arguably the halcyon days of the european touring car championship before they went to um the s2000 uh, uh set of regulations these cars were you know the, the the rover v8 the um the 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 camaro z28 uh from chevrolet they were all part of this um uh Championship, Nissan Skylines, that's just coming back to me actually. Uh, Nissan Skylines would have been around. Um, by the end of 1984, the engines, the V12 engines that were completely that, uh, developed by TWR, they'll put a 450 brake horsepower, as I've said, on tyres in the mid 80s that pretty much couldn't cope with that kind of power output. And they didn't just have success there, they went across to Australia um and they had uh, they had success in the Bathurst 1000 They um TWR was a force to be reckoned with on all fronts not just Tom Walkinshaw but Tom Walkinshaw Racing was an absolute f- uh, force of nature when it came to racing in uh, around the world
3: and uh, paul looking at the uh, the stuff that
1: happened in australia that was
3: pretty amazing wasn't it
1: it was. And I've got a big soft spot for this. And I'm really showing my age here. But uh, yeah, for those of you on this side of the pond, back in the 1980s, we had World of Sport on ITV on a Saturday afternoon. <laughs> oh, yes. And it was World of Sport because it also gave you a chance to see these sports you didn't always get to see. We saw surfing. We saw cliff diving. We saw wrestling from venues such as Scunthorpe's Bath Halls. But as a once-a-year treat, we also Ooh. got the James Hardy 1000 which is you know, Australia's great race, still is to a large degree. And, you know, aside from the fact that Bathurst was unlike any circuit I'd seen up to that point, the Australian coverage was just something else. It was at a level that was operating you know, unique across the world. They had in-car cameras, you know, cutting-edge technology at that point, but they could even do in-car interviews with drivers during the race. And this was just you know stunning at the time, but it, it is that 1985 race that stands out for me when uh, TWR, running under the JRA banner, and, and i i must admit i've never quite figured out i think it's jaguar racing australia and i'm hoping someone can correct me if i'm wrong on that but it was JRA. JRA was on the car very very small tr twr logos on the spoilers but they took three of the mighty xjs's to uh to Bathurst to take on the holdens and fords as the locals as well as a host of visiting touring car races from from across the world and uh, this was the first year the race actually ran to those group A regulations and uh Walkinshaw had actually been there the year before with an XGS and got wiped out in a start line accident. But, you know, obviously coming back that year later, they really wanted a show. And and Joe's just said about Tom Walkinshaw, you know, put this team manager. But yes, you know, as a driver, he's fantastic. And if you get the opportunity, go and find the video of Tom Walkinshaw's lap in the Hardys Heroes Top 10 shootout. Well, actually, which had 11 cars, but we won't go into that. And uh, <laughs> yeah, no, there is a good reason, but it's far too long to explain. And he takes pole position in, in that green and white XJS. And the V12 just sounds sounds stunning as he powers up the mountain straight. And then on that sequence across the top of the hill, at one point he's on two wheels is his commitment through the corners. And then that long, long blast down Conrad straight. And in those days, that was pre-Caltex chase. So literally, it was this long, long straight, which Walking was touching 170 miles an hour, which ended in a 90 degree left. So, yeah, you know, you you hadn't touched your brakes for a long time and you prayed that they were actually doing something at that point. And uh, Walkinshaw qualifies a second quicker than Jeff Allen in the second XJS, two seconds quicker than the quickest of the locals, Dick Johnson's Mustangs. And, uh, you know, it wasn't quite so straightforward for them in the race. Allen retired after two laps with uh, an engine problem. The glass from a broken headlight got ingested into the engine. But before the pit stops, TWR had fabricated, fabricated, uh, wire grills to be fitted to the other two cars to stop it happening again you know this is the level of professionalism they were bringing to that series and uh, Walkinshaw was sharing the car with win percy and they led for much of that race before needing an oil cooler replaced and that dropped them to third behind the quickest of the bmws but it was john goss and armin Hanna that won from the 635 csi of roberto Ravaglia and johnny cicotto but literally you know if you if you enjoyed the walkingshaw video try and find the whole race because you know, you could write a book about everything that happens in that race. You've got local hero Peter Brock retiring from second with a couple of laps to go with the timing belt goes. But he's already had the wind, they've already had to take the windscreen out of his car because that got cracked. At which point, they found they had the regs meant they had to take the rear window out. So there's a second pit stop to do that. And an agile crew member literally grabs the roll cage swings in and kicks it all out in one movement fantastic um jim richards goes past dick johnson up the mountain straight and gives him a thumbs up at around 150 (laughs) miles an hour and there's everything going on in those race and those lovely xjs first and third so what are the keywords you look we're looking for on uh, youtube um, If you just go Bathurst, 1985, you will find Fine. it. We'll that. Yeah. We'll that. There's a and short that. video of that lap, and it really is watch, worth watching just to remind yourself that, uh, yeah, God, Walkinshaw could drive. I I remember those uh, World of
5: Sport uh, productions as well that they, they got from Channel 7 in Australia. And it was Channel 7 that really did pioneer the in-car cameras. Uh, and I'll never forget around that period from Bathurst, um, the the president or the prime minister, I should say, of Australia, um, having a conversation with Dick Johnson mid-race down through the Dipper. And and this was part of the TV show. And it was way before um, in-car cameras were commonplace. In-car cameras that moved from looking at the drivers and swivel around as the car. Uh, it's kind of commonplace now. We take them for granted. And, you know, where, where are the in-car cameras? But back in the early 80s or mid-80s, I should say, we didn't have that, and Australia were at the forefront of that. There they were, they were mega, some mega footage, like Paul says, well worth checking out.
2: Here's, and, a, little what, TV, here's a little TV oh, – sorry to interrupt.
5: Go ahead. Yeah, finish. I've got something else for you. No, no, Jim, go on, because I've, I've got something else to go off the subject. A the little, TV, little TV
2: trivia about the in-car cameras, that that, that coverage by ATN 7. CBS had, had experimented with uh, in-car cameras in 1979 at the Daytona 500, And they worked okay. But they saw the coverage that ATN 7 was doing of the uh, James Hardy race, the Bathurst 1000. And they brought the two guys over from ATN 7 to do the onboard cameras for the 1980 Daytona 500. Those two guys ended up staying in America Formed a company called Broadcast Sports Technology, which is still operating today. And at one point, was they have competition now, but at one point they almost cornered the uh, onboard camera market, and would do like the entire field of the Indianapolis 500, and you know <laughs> thing, things. I exaggerate a little bit there, but almost the entire 33 car field of the Indy 500. These guys were absolute geniuses, and they changed the face of of television motorsports coverage. Did, not wow they yeah i mean we
3: we look back to things like that in the in the 80s and yeah it was just completely different wasn't it the whole the whole thing of motorsport coverage was just a
5: completely different world
3: but yeah but hey how we move on so Joe, before, we
5: before we move on before we move on because i've just found a little stat there was i was which was oh. um i was encouraged by uh, PG, who was uh, coming out with some stats, the the race I mentioned, um, the XGS's first race, he was teamed with Chuck Nicholson. Can you remember him? Yes, I do. he was. He was teamed with Chuck Nicholson, but Tom Walkinshaw, as a driver, he qualified the car five point three seven seconds faster than anyone else on that eleven-kilometer circuit. I mean that that's well. That might be more, more of an indication of how competitive the V12 Jaguar XGS was up against the Alfa Romeo's and the BMW 530s. But it still needed pedaling round and the pedals still needed to be pressed in the right order and the tur- and the steering turned. And you still needed huge cojunas ca- 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 to get through those villages flat out. And Tob Walkmanshaw was never short in that area, was he? That five. He was short in virtually every other area. But that's was, he was, was for it. It. Yeah, but um,
3: yeah, I, I think when you when you look at it that way, yeah, I mean he was a he was a, a great driver. But uh, we've we've touched on before the fact that maybe some of those cars were not as as um, legal as they might have been.
5: I love creative engineering, Paul, um, and and. Tom Show was always after finding the Mark Donoghue uh, unfair advantage. Was it unfair advantage that Mark Donoghue yeah. conned? Yeah. yeah. Um, he was always chasing that. He was always, you know, perhaps one of the first people to, you know, make small margins um, and, and gains, which if you have a lot of small gains, that's a, that's a big gain. So I'm not sure whether or not he was bending. He would have been stretching the rules to the absolute limit and but that again that was commonplace in the sport you know back in the mid 80s when I started racing Formula Fords there was engines and there was engines and there was cars and there was cars so and that that was a cross from club racing through to you know the pro scene. it was kind of expected if you weren't trying to stretch the regs and stretch you know things like power steering fluid in gearboxes to reduce drag which was against the rules um you know people have done all sorts of things so when you've got when you've got the the facilities that tom walkenshaw had then you are going to be at the forefront of that creative engineering as i like to call it
3: so there we were we were in xjs mode um very successful in the European Touring Car Championship particularly, and we've heard from Paul in terms of the success down under as well. But then, again, it's one of those things, isn't it, where perhaps Walking got to the board at Jaguar before Tulius did in terms of a world-dominating prototype car because the car was going very well in the US, but nonetheless... It um, it was one of them was shipped over to the UK for walking shore to try, as as to see if it was worth running in Group C. He went back to Jaguar and said, "No, it's not. It's not worth doing. Um, we need to build something different." And that's really where his series of prototypes started, wasn't it,
6: Joe?
5: Yeah, that's it. I mean, that that's where he was aiming for. You know, all right, it's kind of you know when when He's going about these the business of Europe in the European Touring Car Championship, and then it's kind of like a natural evolution, isn't it? To you you're already in sort of a, you're already involved in endurance racing because those European Touring Car races were sometimes six hours, six hour two driver races. So why wouldn't you not want to um, involve yourself and talk the Jaguar board into getting on board with a prototype program? And that's exactly where he took it
3: and and that was the start of it Paul you were um you were at Le Mans in those in those Jaguar years weren't you
1: I was actually yeah my first Le Mans was 1986 when when I went as a sweet innocent to be quite honest not not, not knowing not knowing what I was going to be seeing and what I was going to be letting myself in for and I had the most eventful Le Mans ever which is a whole nother podcast but yeah the The Group C car. Even then, you were getting that huge interest. That suddenly there was a British challenger taking on the might of Porsche. Who you know, you have to remember at that point, you know, endurance racing was Porsche. You know, they were dominant. They brought out the nine five six. You know, they then brought out the nine six two. But you know, suddenly you were there. And you know, I know that it was commented at the time, but Le Mans was a huge issue for the Brits in the nineteen eighties. And you know, you reputedly there were more Britons going to Le Mans than there were to the British Grand Prix at that time. And, yeah, that whole sense of, you know, suddenly we had a team and you were watching the Jaguars. And, you know, it was fantastic. They sounded different to the other cars. And it really was a spectacular place to be at that time.
3: Indeed it was. And, um, Joe, you, uh, you also were, were there treading the boards, and they, they did sound great, didn't they?
5: Yeah, I mean, it, it, when Jaguar first came in, it was 1985 when they entered the World Endurance Championship. And the, again, there were it was the XGR six, uh, if my memory serves, I might have that wrong. The XGR six, the green one, yeah, the Jaguar livery on right, the front,
3: right at the end of eighty five, wasn't
5: it? Uh, yes,
2: uh, that mean, wasn't Star. It, I think I think that was the XGR eight.
5: Uh, the the one it, it's that I mean, if you look at the drivers that they had at that time, they had they already had Martin Brundle on board, who was you know if not long after. It Was Martin Brundle was the only driver who could take it away at the center in British Formula Three, and challenge? He was the only driver capable of that. Jean Louis Schlesser, uh, Mike Thackwell, who was a superstar. Uh, how Mike Thackwell never got really into Formula One, no one will know. And then you have the old hand Hans Um, you know. And if you look through the history of the evolution of Jaguar, um, it, again, it, it's not something that you can just pull a car out, off a, out of a truck and expect to win world championships and stuff. But TWR knew exactly what to do. And if you just look at their driver lineup, you know, people like, again, Eddie Cheever, I've just thought of Eddie Cheever. It wasn't Eddie Cheever on their books as well. If I look, think he look, was for 86. Look, look at the, look at the, where they, they and when they eventually won Le Mans in 19, 1988, um if you just look at how they'd gone about their racing they did it properly didn't they 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 had they had the funding they had the development and you could see the car that they started with in 1985 had massive amount of promise and so their starting product was certainly gave them a great foundation to then eventually reach success but remember there was that word attrition at the time that we perhaps kind of unfamiliar with in these days at Le Bon, certainly. Um, it's a 24-hour sprint. But Back in the day, attrition became a massive part. So development, as well as getting speed out of the car, we had the Group C fuel formula, and we had the word attrition coming in. So you had to make the car strong. That's,
1: yeah, absolutely. Ex- yeah. Sorry, I was going to say, yeah, that's all I think what you always forget is that, you know, there was, was this logical development almost going on. In 1986, none of the TWR Jaguars finished. And that was the year of the famous, the, the crew sprang, we will be back on the, uh, on the board above the pits, with, with, which said Jaguar racing. <laughs> I and, uh, and, and, and then yeah. in 87, you know, they, they did actually get a car home, you know, which was actually their first finish. And that was the fifth place with, I think, Cheever, Rao Bozell and Jan Lammers in the car. So you know they were building up, and then it was they like say you know without stealing the thunder of telling the story, but that 1988 win, you know they they'd almost crept up on it and deserved it by that point. Mm. And, yeah, and I think they and, had.
2: And don't forget, guys, they were doing this development and this success, the successful development against the Porsche 956 yeah. and 962s. Yeah, uh, that just makes the accomplishment even greater considering that you you've entered you've entered a great the fray against the greatest heavyweight yeah you know i'm going to try and win the heavyweight championship well i'm going to wait till muhammad ali hits his prime and then i'm going to (laughs) join then then i'm going to join the weight class and i'm going to move up from cruiserweight to to heavyweight and kick ali's ass you know yeah that's what i I like
5: your analogy Yeah. That's and good. then they all It was a miracle that they won in 1988. Let's not forget that story about the uh, the primary shaft in the gearbox being in two bits and Jan Lammers finishing the car. I think did he keep it in fourth gear? Or it was fifth? fourth, yeah. Fourth gear, yeah. He kept it in fourth gear for I, I don't know what was it the, the last the whole hour of the final hour where he didn't, yeah, pretty change much. Gear? Um. Yeah. And and then when they got the car, having won the race, Jan Lammers, Johnny Dumfries, Andy Wallace standing on the podium there, when they got the car back to the workshop and took the gearbox apart, when they, they pulled the main shaft out, it fell into two bits. It was in two bits. And if he'd continued to change gear, taking the load, so you can imagine a broken bar, and it's not a clean break, it's a, it's a, it's a fracture. So the bits of the fracture are holding together because of the force of the torque keeping it together as soon as you release that talk i.e., change gear that would have eventually have just snapped but the fact that he kept it in fourth gear and kept the drive through that fractured bit it kept it together it's incredible it's it's a miracle story really um that 1988 finish and what what
2: a shame if he hadn't finished after all that extra gas they'd snuck into the car (laughs) oh Jim (laughs) that's being
6: cynical (laughs)
1: <laughs> and also, of course, don't forget that, you know, I, I've interviewed Derek Bell once and he still bears a grudge about that race because he's convinced that, you know, their car came second on the same number of laps. Oh, he really? Yeah. And they, they they lost it purely because, if you remember, Klaus Ludwig ran out of fuel on the track mm-hmm. and brought that, that 962C back in on the starter motor effectively. And, um, yeah, Derek was convinced that that was Klaus re- regressing to his just racing days when they could sneak an extra lap out the car due to um yeah due to a little trick that yes were pulling. Yes.
3: And just to uh just to complete the what ifs, don't forget that the Mercedes Sauber team uh-huh. didn't complete didn't compete in eighty eight because Michelin couldn't build a tire that could deal with the top speed Del Molsan. Um and they they had a big accident uh Klaus Nietzsche had a big accident in qualifying or in practice. And That uh, they withdrew. Now, if if there had been the rubber available for them to be able to do what they wanted to do, they were the fastest cars, no doubt about that. Yeah,
2: because because Jaguar and Porsche were on Dunlap, weren't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah.
3: Okay, and that um, they withdrew because there was uh,
5: there was a a real risk of of another blowout. So, yeah, can you remember, guys? Can you remember, guys, when um, we had a Group C? support race at Le Mans a few years ago. Um, um, you guys were there because I, w- I was in the pits. Bob Berridge had, was the order yeah. of the Sauber C9. Same issue with the front tyres. Basically, the, um, the, the, the body work was pushed down. The downforce on the Mulzan was pushed down onto the tyres and, and, and kind of rubbing on the tyres. And Bob had a huge problem with that and exactly the way that the uh, car of the time, the period, had with the, with the with the Michelin's, incredible.
3: Isn't that ridiculous that all those years on, it um, same same problem, and that's it's yeah. just one of those things, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but uh, Jim, there was a there was a parallel effort for TWR in the US, wasn't there?
2: There sure was, and it was wildly. Successful by any other standard except the Porsche 962 standard. Um, again, this was a time when in IMSA competition, the you really had the Porsches. Then you had Nissan come in. You had, and finally Toyota came in. So these XJR cars, the 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 TWR XJR cars, were competing against the best and the brightest GTP competition that was out there. The class had grown from its early stages in the early 80s when it was just the 962 through you know, the, the old Lola, the T600, and then the 962. And then it became a manufacturer of, uh, playground with Nissan and Toyota and Jaguar really mixing things up. And from 1988, when the first XJR 9 appeared, through 1992, you had the XJR 9, 10, 12, and 14s racing in the United States, uh, either in Castrol livery, people remember that, or the Bud Light livery. Davy Jones um, was was kind of the, the American that, that led the way, but there was a... a group of absolutely fantastic drivers, as as Joe pointed out earlier, that competed in these cars. And, and during that time, you had the – I think it was, if my math was correct, it was uh, 13 victories during that time, including a couple of Daytona victories in the 24 hours, a Sebring victory. You had a Daytona 1-2 with the XJR-12. In nineteen ninety the car had uh almost thirty podium finishes. There was one season where they finished uh they had sixteen podiums uh in nineteen eighty eight and eighty nine that's finishing on the podium in virtually every race in nineteen eighty eight to do that so it was just um it was a fantastic – oh, and don't forget the BMW was was there. Uh, and I remember that because they, they took Davy Jones away from, from Jaguar, uh, hired him away from Jaguar to drive the BMW. So it was a halcyon time for Jaguar in the United States, and they were one of the stars of the IMSA series. Uh, Bob Tullius and, and his crew with the XJR 5, 6, and 7s were, were very competitive but they only could claim a couple of victories against those 962s, it was the TWR cars that came over and really gave the Porsches, the Nissans, and the Toyotas something to think about. And it was great racing. It was absolutely fantastic racing, and uh, the Jaguars were stars.
3: Now, before we, we leave TWR, we need to just address the the turbo cars which, were, which came after the V12s. And they had the V6 engine, which was developed uh, by TWR out of the car, the engine that had been in the Metro 6R4. To me, they were never really quite proper Jaguars. But what does anybody else think?
1: I'm with you mm-hmm. on that, to be quite honest. That, that, yeah, that, that they, were, they were almost sort of the the black sheep of the family i think compared to the big <laughs> v12s weren't they and you you yeah. can see why it was done because that big v12 was a big high lump it was sort of too tall properly to be a race engine in a group c car um you know it affected the weight distribution but uh, yeah something was lost for me when uh, suddenly you had the met the engine that had been in a metro
3: <laughs> yeah
5: n- never quite lived lived out that one um uh, joe uh, did, uh, did you Paul, did you like those Paul's just hit the nail on the head. I mean, I liked them because they were a development. That's the only way forward. The the big lump of a V12, it was thirsty, it was heavy, it was high. That they, they needed to go in a different direction. So the smaller, more compact turbocharger, remember at the time, um, turbocharging had uh, just become banned from Formula One. So there is you know, was that an influence on all that turbocharging technology and engineers and and the actual motors becoming uh, useful in the world of uh, sports car racing? You kind of have to look at the big picture with the way that engine regs change and the way that um, things develop. There's always a bit of a broader picture. Um, But for me, I I mean, I I didn't have a problem with it. I like the V12. And if if I've got to choose, give me a V12 Jaguar any day. Um, You know, I had half a V12 in my straight six XJ, Um, you know, um, and that used to be, you you open the bonnet uh, on my XJ and there was a big lump of an engine that was just a proper engine. So put two of them together in a V formation. Um, I've never driven a V12 Jag, but I can imagine how well my straight six went. Jeez. Um, So, yeah, to have that engine... That was purer, wasn't it? It was kind of purer because it was the derivative of the road car engine. So when it went to the turbo car, it was more of a, it was more of a pure racing motor, wasn't it? If I I believe, de, you know, derivative and develop oh, Sure, this, sure. I,
3: I think it suffered from from being linked to the Metro, but that's uh, that's another yeah. story. And, and yeah. Jim, we, we tend to think of. The certainly then, as you know, the typical American car being over-engined and no. with big V eight things. <laughs> so, what, what was the view? <laughs> what was what was the view of the great American public to this um, strange little turbo car?
2: The same, and and it, and it goes back to the Metro, and uh, yeah, I mean that was a, almost a worldwide opinion. I don't think you find most anybody that, uh, I mean, I, I'm sure there will be a dissenter on Twitter that comes forward and says, hey, I <laughs> thought that thing was great. You don't know what you're talking about. I hope about, so. Right? But, yeah, yeah, that would be that would be great. Here's a what if for you, boys. What if they had made a Boxster 12 like Ferrari did in 76 with Lauda's car that dropped that engine way down low?
5: Wouldn't that have <laughs> I been did, cool? but Yeah, but it it would have screwed up with the – um, Underfloor aero, which these cars were yeah. all about.
2: Um, Man, so you true. need.
5: You needed the tunnels down the full length of the car, so the. I yeah, mean that's that's, what... that's
2: pre-tunnel day for Formula One. Wasn't
5: it? Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. you know the the how the flat twelve won the seventy nine World Championship. Um, it still remains a mystery, and Paul Jurd can used to work for Jordy Schek. So perhaps he can shed some light on that. But that's a we're off on a tangent. Steady, <laughs> steady.
6: <laughs> yeah. uh, what?
5: What? J- Trying hard to keep it on,
3: that um, by then the the Jaguar story in current competition was beginning to draw to a close. But it was um, it was something which certainly came along after that with the with the advent of the XJ two hundred and twenty, which was a road car. And until you told me about it, Jim, I had no idea about the uh,
2: the Fast Masters series. Yes, the Fast Master Series was, um, it was in 1993. It was a made-for-television event. ESPN had a show called Saturday Night Thunder that they aired from Indianapolis Raceway Park, which is a 5-8-mile oval, uh, asphalt oval in uh, Indianapolis. Uh, it's not far from Speedway, Indiana, the home of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. And – the racing there, the USAC races there were absolutely scintillating. They were non-wing sprint cars, midgets. It was, it was fantastic stuff. Well, in 1993, uh, Bridgestone, Haviland, they got together and they had identically prepared uh, by, you'll never guess who TWR XJ 220s, is is there a kernel of uh, thought coming through here this was a this was another Walkinshaw and money maker it was a, it was a, on the on the face of it it seemed a bit silly but it ended up being fairly popular just because of the name draw you know you think these XJ220s these kind of monster supercar type cars on a five-eighths mile oval. They put a little chicane into turn one, so it kind of gave it a little road course feel and and took the oval away from it. And they raced on consecutive uh, Saturdays in June. So it was June 19th, June 26th, July 10th, you know, on and on. Uh, The championship finale was uh, in August. And the winner overall of the whole Megilla. And how it worked was there. it was an elimination series. So at each race, you scored points first through 10th. Guy with the uh, least points gets eliminated. Elimination thing. Goes down to the final in August. Bobby Unser defeats David Pearson, Brian Redman, David Hobbs, George Fulmer, and Pernelli Jones. Now, I would watch those five guys race.
4: Uh, you That's know so Briggs cool. and
2: Stratton lawnmowers, frankly, and um, and they weren't the the only ones in the thing. I'm going to just rattle off some quick names here because if I if I read them slowly, it would it would take up the rest of the podcast. Bobby and Donnie Allison, Buddy Baker, Derek Bell, uh, Indian indie greats uh, Gary Bentenhausen Tom Bigelow, Bob Bondurant, uh, Larry Dixon, who was famous at the at 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 IRP and in the USAC ranks, Guy Edwards from the UK, Vic Elford. Walker Evans of off-road racing fame, Gene Felton, George Fulmer, Harry Gant, Charlie Glotzbach, Jerry Grant, um, Pete Hamilton, another, uh, another oval racer, Eddie Hill, the drag, the top fuel drag racer, Hobbs, uh, Pernelli Jones, Mel Kenyon, uh, great uh, stock car names, Elmo Langley and Fred Lorenzen, Herschel McGriff, Paul Newman, uh, Benny Parsons, David Pearson, Henri Pescarolo, Tom Pistone, who is uh, known for a lot of things in the United States, Lenny Pond, Jim Rathman. I told you about Brian Redman, Lloyd Ruby, Johnny Rutherford, Troy Rutman, Dick Simon, Dick Trickle, Bobby Unser, Roger Ward, and Bob Wallach. The only rule for the drivers, you had to be 50 years of age. And Wallach had turned 50 that year. And so he made it in just under the wire. Um, But, yeah, so that's why it was called Fast Masters. It was... I think they want it was around the time when senior golf was really starting to take off. And this was kind of a spinoff from the senior golf tour. It only lasted one season, but it sure it sure was fun. Thank you for that. That's
3: that's a, a chink in my motorsport knowledge, which I shall uh, it's, be it's very not- happy to uh, to work on.
1: Are there any videos on YouTube? On the, on oh, there that? are. Oh, there yeah. are. Oh, that's <laughs> well worth watching. To, to be honest, to see the XJ220 on, on a small oval is something outrageous. And I, I watched, I have watched Heat one and uh, it was one by Ed McCullough. Who I, th- I think Jim, and correct me if I'm yeah, wrong, another it was actually drag a drag racer. racer.
2: Yeah, another drag racer. That's exactly right. Oh, you know, this, they drew, they drew from every discipline. I mean, Bob Aiken was there. There's another name, road race. He had road racers, drag racers. Indy Car stars, uh, regular short track folks. Yeah, that was it was uh, uh, a who's who of the over fifty set.
1: Yeah, a quick search (laughs) on Fast Masters, and there you go. A who's who of the over fifty set. I think is the
3: historic racing news radio show.
5: But that's beside the (laughs) point. Can't argue, Paul. um, That I've got to tell you, you, you may have seen this. I know, Jim. You probably haven't because this was from the. What I call the halcyon days of the Intermark Championship for Hammock, uh for the Amok series. Paul Judd, you'll remember this car. Can you guys remember Malcolm Hamilton's E Type? It yes. was a, it was a mod sports. Um, a guest that I'm about to bring in. Um, I'm absolutely delighted to uh, to reach out. Uh, Rob Beer from Rob Beer Racing. Uh, welcome, Rob. Um, and it's great that you've been uh, able to sit down with us and uh, have a chat today.
6: Lovely, thanks, Joe.
5: Um, Now then, Rob, we're not going to talk about our off-track antics because that would take about a four or five-hour podcast. I want to keep certainly would. (laughs) (laughs) I love the soap operas uh, that the soap opera that goes on off the track. Um, I'm obviously wanting to talk to you about a car that I have massive memories of. It's Malcolm Hamilton's E-Type. It's arguably the fastest E-Type in existence. Um, that's an old, the whole debate in itself, isn't it? But but it's a creation that you created and it's affectionately become known as the Beast and that's for very good reasons. Give give us an idea of what we're talking about here. 7.3 litre, I think it ended up as.
6: Yeah, it's, it, uh, it started off um, as a purchase of uh, Kearns Richards um, that Malcolm managed to persuade them to, to buy to progress from his six-cylinder days um and we it was an ex um hill climb car owned by a guy called Fred Cliff and it uh, it came with a load of old broadspeed you know the coupe cars mm-hmm. uh, engines engines and parts so we started off with it like that it progressed into a 7.3 we slowly le- quickly learned really that uh, it needed lots of torque it was a heavy car and so mm. forth. So yeah, it uh, it ended up becoming a seven point three. A couple of years later, or the following year, I started Rob Beer Racing, and it it, it progressed from there. And
5: and, and you um, and Malcolm really, you kind of re uh, rewrit the uh, the textbook, I believe. I mean, you you really did start a development program on that car. I mean, not just engine wise, because I think that you, you guys experimented with things from six litres all the way up to 9.3
6: litres? Is I think that right? that's, No, I think that's a misquote, to be honest. I, right, think, okay. I think it should have been 5.3 up to 7.3. We did do a slightly bigger ones. Um, but you're like, right, a, 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 most of the work was in the car itself.
5: Right, um, and, and just tell us, because I, I, I believe I've read that you guys, from the, from the car that Malcolm bought, you, you, you. A lot of chassis development went into it. Things like, you know, shortening the wheelbase, and how, I mean, how how much into that did you you guys go?
6: Well, everything really. It, it's, wow. From from suspension modifications to you know dreaming up all sorts. I think the, uh, the, the one of the biggest moves forward was in tires of all things that you kind of forget about when you're building monster engines every week the, the mm. most important things the bit that sticks the car to the track so we ended up going from Avon cross ply slicks to Dunlop radial slicks that transform the car uh, and as time went on we got to um, to, to, to get, get more sponsorship um, and we also got to know some of the guys just through through our sort of the, the, the way we were, some of the guys at Myra who helped us in the wind tunnel. So oh, we ended wow. up with yeah. ended up with all sorts of wings and funny bits and pieces on it that, that actually worked. So the car went from being undrivable in wet weather, for instance, to <laughs> yeah. to a real front runner in the wet.
5: Yeah, I mean that's what I remember, Rob. I remember this thing uh, with lots of aero on the front, on the back, <laughs> across the car. It was it and. and I always used to think. I mean, I've I've seen performance figures. I, um, how heavy was it? It was just over twelve hundred kilograms. Yeah, way.
6: it was about twelve hundred and fifty kilograms. Um, Wait, that's the
5: that's the weight of a touring car. Yeah, but it's got yeah. a seven point three liter. How much brake horsepower was it
6: putting out? It was putting out close to seven hundred horsepower, but similar <laughs> sort of torque, and that's that that was the big thing—the torque for that car. Not to
5: one hundred and fifty miles an hour in
6: eight seconds. I've seen. Uh, I've read the same. We didn't kind of, um, time it, we didn't yeah. ever, ever time it, but it was clocked at the old rivet straight, um, when it was racing against the, uh, Aston Martin Nimrod at 190. So that was, uh, that, that was pretty quick, obviously.
5: There's a story about you guys seeing how fast you could go on a, on an airfield. And I've, I've, uh, I've seen written 185. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. then the diff exploded or something.
6: Yeah. Uh, uh,
5: (laughs) there's a couple of stories on that great stories Rob man that's just mental isn't it
6: well we went along for we uh, we were invited by one of my customers of all all people to RF Woodbridge he was an an ex-pilot and and an E-type enthusiast so we went along Uh, and in all honesty we we buggered up the the, the gearing in it so I worked out what it would do and all this sort of thing so off he went, and I said, you better be careful because, you know, we don't want it to take off or do anything crazy. Mm. So mm. just pull it up to 5,000 revs. And on his first run, it was like 184 or something. I said, what the hell are you doing? He said, it won't pull more than that. So we basically got a too long a diff in it. Um, so he only did a couple of runs. Um, but yeah, 184 on its first run, and it also had a passenger sitting in it with <laughs> not in a seat or with a seat belt or a crash helmet or anything because it was just going to the end of the runway just to see see how how well it went. Who was the passenger then? Did you did um, you? It wasn't me. Don't worry. I was Would you that brave?
5: <laughs> <laughs> I mean that that's it's an incredible story, Robert, and from. Your perspective as an engineer and and you're a renowned engine builder. And is it fair to say that you are a Jaguar engine specialist? And and I don't know if you started out to be that, but you certainly are now, mate.
6: I I started uh, my apprenticeship at 16, 19, whenever it was, 77 or something for a company, for Ron Beatty, a company called Forward Engineering, who in that day, very uh, renowned Jaguar engine specialist and and did a bit of racing as well. Um, And that's all I've done, really, all all, all, all of my career. So we specialised just in engines to start with. And then really the sort of uh, relationship with Malcolm sort of moved us into other areas. And now we probably do less engine work, more performance parts for engines and a lot of performance parts for the cars. Right. But still still Jaguar and mostly E-Type. I,
5: you were t- t- telling me the other day, Maltham's still kicking about. He, has he still got the house on the outside
6: of Druids at Upton Park? No, no, that's long gone. He he moved right. to Spa- he moved to Spain for a while. Uh, he's he, and then he's he, he comes and goes from he loves he loves it out in Spain. And he he worked a little out there, um, you know, instructing. Mm-hmm. Um, he's now um, I've forgotten the name of the place. Where's that place off Wales, Anglesey? Oh he's, yeah. He's, yeah, he's living between Anglesey and. Um, in Spain, but he's he, 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 yeah, he's quite amazing that he's still alive. He's about seventy-five, <laughs> I think, something like that. And he yeah, uh, hasn't, hasn't changed at all. And you know what I mean, there, Joe.
5: Yeah, I do. I <laughs> I always loved Malcolm. He was such yeah. a character, and always so open to talk about the car. And that's what I loved about you guys. Well, you, I think you, that was you... that
6: was our main thing. It was it yeah. really was uh, it was embedded in our whole ethos, if that's the word, to to, to go and race against. You know there were some pretty big uh, button competitors out there, and it was just really good to do it. We we were very serious about it, but on, you know, when we were racing and after racing, that that's how we wanted to be uh, a bit of fun, you know.
5: Well, it was the halcyon days of the Aston Martin Owners Club Intermark Championship, where you were up against Jerry Marshall in the Marsh Plant Aston V8 along. And then came Richard Chamberlain in that 935 uh, lookalike. It was, it was uh, uh, the series at that time. I think I, I find myself looking back and thinking I was very lucky to have witnessed that your machine out there on the track. It was just, it was just a sight to see. Now, I believe that the car has been at various stages of preparation and, and re- restoration, let's say. Um, are you still involved in the car in any way?
6: No, not at all. Um, right I after think... the after the car was um, was wrote off, or you know, uh, mm. that was in in September 2001, and we just took it back. It was the end of the season. We'd had probably one of our most successful seasons. It was just a one-off accident, um, and we were sort of back to the put it put it all all right. But what I wanted to do was progress the car, and it was very heavy. We managed to lose 100 kilos, relocate axles within the uh, roll cage and all this sort of stuff. But I got to the stage where we didn't really want to repair it. We wanted sort of a a more modern carbon fiber uh, body on it. And we were at the point where it needed money spending, wheels and stuff like that. And uh, the, the sponsor, our main sponsor had gone bump in between. It was all ready to put for the next stage by by the Christmas, um, and then mm. it really sort of fell apart just simply because we ran out of sponsorship money. Um, yeah. And and you, you we were getting a lot of stiff competition. Richard Chamberlain's car was we were just holding him off, but he was really getting quick. Uh, we had the two twenties and as you say, uh, Astons and Nimrods and things like that. So it, it was it was hard to just repair it and go back out again and it it, it just petered off really for a sh- uh, sadly uh and it sat around for quite a while mm. maybe maybe 10 years five ten years uh until the the guy who owns it now who's a mod sports um enthusiast bought it offers and and he restored it to how how it last raced so all the livery and everything wow. is how yeah. we last raced it fabulous um, and that's it. I've not really had any uh, input at all apart from, you know, the masking and stuff and giving them yes. uh, yeah. details and that.
5: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you know what, Rob, um, as you know, when Rob B Racing was developing that car, it didn't matter what aero uh, and appendages that you guys uh, attached to the car to make it you literally had to push it to the ground because it would have just take off like an airplane. <laughs> it, 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 you really did. You were, you, you guys were representing Jaguar uh, every time at the Intermark championship, quite literally. Well, quite literally, it was an Intermark championship. But what I mean is you never lost that E-type shape. You could always see it was distinctly a Jaguar E-type. And, and I think that was very special as well. Um, and it's again, it's like we look back and you know what, Rob, I don't know about you, but when I look back to that period of time, uh, it's not even rose tinted glasses that I need. The the period was very real. And I'm sure you have some cracking memories of, of being around that car and around that series.
6: Oh, yes, yeah, certainly. Uh, I I totally agree with you on the E-Type bit, but there are a lot of people who <laughs> wouldn't. Um, I know. But, uh, <laughs> saying it looked like a dodge viper and things like that but but you're right it you, you know it was it was a great time and 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 it was good to be properly at the front um racing and it was great fun remembering guys like yourself and Pete snowden and that too. Yeah, yeah yeah I mean, million really times. Some...
5: We had some cracking nights out and that's coming in a podcast in the future. Um, (laughs) If at all. Uh, It'll have to be for kids only, that one. Um, Uh, I I really appreciate you um, um, doing this for us and giving us, uh, putting the meat on the bones. I mean, my memories of the car, I would have just been able to talk about, you know, the noise, the sound, the, the racing that you guys uh, did. But it really, we really appreciate it uh, that you've been able to talk to us. And uh, I wish you well, mate. And the next time I'm in the Coventry area, I'm going to give you a bell and we'll, uh, we'll have a
6: couple of slurps. That'd be a great idea. Thank you, Joe. L- lovely to speak to you again after all this time. Yeah. Thanks, Rob.
1: The Historic Racing News Radio Show.
3: Now, looking at the jaguar e-type lightweight Um, there's quite a few out there racing now these days and i'm joined by somebody who's had the joy honor privilege call it what you will to, to to race some of these cars peter snowden snowy uh hi and welcome to the historic racing news radio show
0: what are these cars like to drive well yes um hi hi paul yes and what do they like to drive um incredibly immersive like a lot of historic cars um as you said they've got a they've got a great deal of power uh, and don't weigh a great deal they are called semi-lightweights and they're just over a thousand kilograms in weight dry um and power these days we're looking at around about sort of 385 at the flywheel uh, type power so obviously combine that with um good old-fashioned cross-plies and it's uh, what's not to like, <laughs> <laughs> but with a
3: with a car like that, three hundred eighty five brake horsepower. When perhaps in period, even those lightweight cars would have been struggling to have much more than three hundred. That must be that must be quite a handful.
0: Yes, I, I think you're probably right there. I don't know the figures from period, but I think probably just over three hundred, three hundred ten might have been about the thing. Um, but uh, yeah, they are. I mean, they're. They're interesting compared to some of the other historians, because uh, uh, take, take some of the Astons, which are normally a little, a little bit shorter and a bit wider. And E-Type's quite a long wheelbase and quite a narrow track. All right. Um, so it, it's quite pendulous. Um, so it doesn't tend to give you much warning when it's, when it's about to break away. Uh, so it loads and loads and loads, and then all of a sudden it wants to go, and it's, it's a lot to catch.
1: That's
3: um, interesting. I was going to ask you about the the difference between driving um, an Aston, which is, let's face it, what you're most famous for, and for um, for running a, an E Type. But yeah, you say there. One of the things I'm I'm interested in, Snowy, is that we see cars, we see classic, historic cars, vintage cars, call them what you will. Uh, racing these days, absolutely flat not in terms of flat out but in terms of very little body roll in the cars and I guess that's probably to do with modern day tyre technology is it?
0: It is as much as anything else and suspensions all all evolve so much hence hence the cars are doing far quicker at times at places like Goodwood uh, than they were with you know sort of famous drivers at the wheel at the time Um, they've they've evolved enormously but tyre technology yes they are crosswise but they're they're far better made now than they were in period does that does that mean you're going to set
3: the car up very differently from how they would have done it in the 1960s
0: well obviously i can't give too much away about setup details but (laughs) yes they are they are
3: they are different um, Always a racer, Snowy. Always a racer. <laughs> one,
0: one of the things with, with the E-Type is that you'd say, comparing to an Aston it's quite different to many other cars. Is um, Most cars are coil spring, and the E-Type has torsion bar suspension system at the front. Um, so you basically have a, the, the, the tub of the car, so I, I the dashboard back is is a steel tub, and then you've got a, an engine bed bolted onto the front in a frame, and that's where your engine goes. Uh, and you have torsion bar suspension so great big long torsion bars going backwards towards the gearbox which bolt onto the gearbox and they they twist it's not a spring that's how that's how it twists so um, setting one up is is incredibly time consuming
3: how how do you go about setting that up because presumably it's it's different torsion bars is it
0: It is. There's a a cam system at the end. There's a a reaction plate under the uh, bell housing of the gearbox that it bolts to. And there's a a cam system there. So it's adjustable for ride height. So you have to lie underneath the car at the gearbox end to adjust the ride height of the car, which is quite extraordinary. Um, But you set it up as much as you can. But obviously, the main things we've done with them was spar six hour. And you can't really go to Spa for a lot of testing a great deal unless you do a track day earlier in the year, and then there's a gap. So you do other races. So you try and set it up somewhere like Donington, where you've got the craner curves, the flow, the contour change, et cetera, um, as opposed to Silverton, which is just flat. Yeah. So go somewhere like Donington and set the car up with a, as close as you can to a setup for, for Spa. But yeah, the teams build all this data and over the years, and they have it and try and remember it. But if you're new to it, as we were when we started it back in 20. 20- 2011, 2012, I think it was, with the ETI, perhaps 2013. Uh, it was obviously new to us, so and nobody else was going to tell you how to do it, were they?
3: You talk about Spa, and that you know, an incredibly quick circuit, even now. Um, that We ran a photograph on the Historic Race News Facebook page, Um, a few weeks ago, which was of uh, of the 1966 Grand Prix at Spa and the Burnhamville corner with that famous picture of the Cooper Maserati hanging over the precipice. And that part of the circuit's gone. Yes, I know that. But it is still a mind-blowingly quick circuit. And I'm always interested to know how people deal with that, that you're there with a car with close to 400 brake horsepower, um, as you say, not much weight, um, a very old-fashioned view of safety in many ways. I mean, no, it's got a roll
0: cage, but that's about it. Is it sort of take a big deep breath and uh, and, and close your eyes? There, there's certainly an element of that. I mean, I think safety-wise, um, they are the, the far better than they were. The cages are far more comprehensive than they would have been in period. Where it was a kind of a rollover hoop, whereas now it's a proper cage. Yeah. Uh, so the the passenger cell is 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 quite safe these days, and of course you've got modern seats, belts, extinguishers, that kind of thing. So from that point of view, um, it's far better. It's far improved, which gives which gives you a, a comfort, of course, because if something does happen, then you know that that side that side is safe. Um, that said, it's still and um, for the Spa Six Hour, for instance, they allow because of the weather in the Ardennes, as we know. Um, the organisers do allow us to run a radial tyre for that. So they tend to use a, a Avon ZZR, which is just a little bit safer uh, in the wet. The Dunlops in the wet for six hours probably wouldn't be the most safe tyre, although it was in period, <laughs> but things have changed.
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and I think the the view of safety and the, the view of... The, the- probably the value of human life is is rather different now thankfully than it was then yeah
0: So yeah so, so, I mean, they're, it, they're still they're still doing i mean around the, the current configuration of spa they're doing comfortably under i mean we're doing two minute forty forty five forty sixes 45 46s around spa in an e-type wow that's quick yeah yeah, yeah. that's that's and, qualifying we're doing about just just around about three minutes for the race obviously it's a, a six-hour race
3: yeah yeah
0: and so
3: as I say, you're you're best known for your exploits in in Aston Martins of all shapes and sizes and vintages and and, and colours. Yes. <laughs> not
2: your not
3: your vintage, no. <laughs> <laughs> but it, you're you're best known for that. You're and that you step outside that that hallowed Aston Martin ground from time to time, and yeah, with the with the Type, is it? Is it on your all-time list? Is it, is it one of your
6: favourites?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've, I've got um, uh, fond memories because dri- we've driven two in particular at Spa. One was the, uh, onto a guy, Martin Melling, who still got it, a low drag configuration. Uh, and we shared that with uh, Martin, Rob Hall of Hall & Hall fame. And uh, we had a, a great race. We did it in 20, I think it was 2012 was the first one we did, which was uh, an explorer sort of toe-in-the-water exercise to get the car really ready for the following year and I think we finished in the 86th with you know this failing that failing and fan belts and points and all sorts of things because they still run plugs points and yeah, that kind of stuff of course uh, yeah. nothing, nothing electronic um, that was a, a proving year and the following year we went back and we finished um extraordinarily seventh overall and second in class which is uh, brilliant which we well, just extraordinary for for an e-type yeah it's quite yeah. good
3: and and that's um that's a recreation of the um Peter Lindner Peter Nocker car isn't that's it right. That's that's right yes yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah and and i have to say it looks brilliant in that in that dark colour scheme i think it's, it
0: does with the, with the black wheels as well cuz it just just yes it almost looks a bit stealth doesn't it <laughs>
3: <laughs> so it's uh, yeah I and mean, thank you for that because i think you've given us a, a good insight into just how um just how character building, I think, is the expression uh, driving an E-Type would be.
0: Um, That's that's one way of putting it, yeah. There's a lot lot of hanging on. Yeah, put it that way. They keep you busy.
3: (laughs) Do you know, I think those two expressions, a lot of hanging on and it keeps you busy, are the very best way to finish that. Peter Snowden, (laughs) thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Paul. We've talked a lot about TWR and Tom Walkinshaw as being close to the knuckle in terms of how they – won their races and it's you know that's a matter for conjecture and certainly we're not going to make any judgments on that part but the very very end of their program at Le Mans was not running their v12 cars that they'd they'd run and been so successful with it wasn't even running anything else it was that they came back and did the xj 220 as a race car And that wasn't really covered in glory, was it, Joe?
5: No. uh, Well, it kind of was, you know, moral victory, let's say. won the GT class. And we had David Brabham, David Coulthard, a very young David Coulthard at this stage. He hadn't really made his name in F1. That was to come a year later. And John Nielsen, the Danish legend. And the XG220C, to give it its full title, um, was racing in the GT class. Uh, it was racing under a waiver with regards to homologation because the GT class had to be production-based cars, and part of the homologation was the exhaust system. However, the XG220 on the road would have run a catalytic converter. It wasn't uh, running a catalytic converter in race, guys, so it had to, it asked for a waiver, and there was uh, concerns in with regard to the scrutineering. However, a waiver was served. It then went on to win the class, and then a month later, it was disqualified on a technicality. Um, now, I'm not sure, Paul Jurd might be able to remember, if the technicality was regarding the catalytic converter and the lack of thereof. Um, even though Jaguar, the, the, their evidence and their appeal had been filed correctly with the ACO, apparently not on time for the FFSA, which is the French Motorsport Authority Um, and so it was disqualified and if you look at the records for the 1993 Le Mans 24 hours you'll find that the GT class was won by a Porsche of Jurgen Barth Uh, but that had actually finished two laps behind this Jag Um, it absolutely bossed the the class and had been fine the the week previous in scrutineering yeah yeah come on guys come and race this beautiful Jaguar XJ 220 because we need the entries however when it bossed the class by two laps the french weren't very happy and so dealt with it in a very french way in my view (laughs) now i could
3: give you a bit of motorsports trivia on that david Coulthard' um name is regularly mispronounced as david Coulthard, um and that car that he raced at le mans at the xj220 they spelt his name wrong on the on the car it is c-o-u-l-t-a-r-d no h in it ah and that if you look at any of the period pictures you'll see that it's Coulthard. and i find it interesting that now the car is restored as uh as it was and they spelt his name properly which is
5: oh. <laughs> which is great it's up for sale as well i believe is it yes um oh, gd right. classics have it up for sale um, I uh, I go, ha- go and have a look at that. Go have a look, mate. It's price- it's always a bad sign when it's price on application, isn't it? <laughs> it
3: means you
1: can't yeah,
2: means you can't afford it. It's, it,
1: it's gonna be more than you think, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah. I, I just looked it up, Joe, and it was disqualified for illegal exhaust.
5: Yeah, yeah. Well there we are.
2: Which, and, which uh, the with-
5: wave, which the waiver was there to cover. However, it was in France this race. I'll say no more.
6: Mm.
3: no more, no more you know, you know who
2: else campaigned the XJ two twenty at Le Mans Go on. Hugh Chamberlain.
3: Ah, yes, he did. did. Absolutely, yes. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Dark blue one. Yeah. Dark yeah, blue one. Yeah. 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 Well, on on that on that note of reverie, um, <laughs> I think that's the the end of this Jaguars in competition special, the second part. I'd like to thank all of our guests, Philip Porter for his great E Type stories, Rob Beer for talking about that monster E Type uh, that we talked to Grant Williams, giving us a sneaky peek into what it's like to be at the, the wheel of one of those historic Jaguar saloons. In today's series, I'd like to thank all of our regular team, Paul Jurd, Jim Roller, and Joe Bradley. I'd like to thank specifically Bill Adam for uh, for being. Part of what is a, a very important podcast for all of us, I think. One question for all of you
5: boys, Joe: yes. favorite Jaguar of all time? Um, it's the Bud Light car that ran in Imza. Um, I have no idea why. I just love that car. Um, just the way you know it, it's the it's the um, it's the XGR sixteen. So it's got the wheel covers on the rear and it just looks like it. It kind of looks like a a slightly wide Formula One car with a roof in my mind. And it also very much sounds the jobby as well. Three litre twin Garrett turbos, an absolute flying machine. But visually, I kind of like that livery. And it was a very, very, very basic livery. It ran in the IMSA GTP series. It had a Bud Light sticker on the front, on the on the nose cowling. It had Bud Light along the side, and it was predominantly white. Um, and it was up against, at the time, it would have been up against the Castrol cars, Jim, would it have been? Yep. Um, in that series. But for me, I, I, I like that car. I like the look of that car better than the silk cut livery, would you believe, um, which was around at that same time. But uh, for me, that's my favourite ever Jaguar for for lots of reasons.
3: Gerd, what's your favorite
1: oh i'm you know i knew this question was coming and i am still completely torn on the answer <laughs> you know the easy answer is the xjr9 i was there in 1988 when Jaguar took that first le mans win and that silk cut livery which went through lots of evolutions don't forget but the 88 livery was the one with that sort of yellowy gold trim on it and down the sides mm-hmm. and big soft spot for that and I'm sorry, but I'm still torn between that and just give me that bar first XJS in that green with the white stripe down the side.
2: And, Jim, what about you? Well, my favorite Jaguar changed a little while ago, a couple years ago. Of course, it was for a long time. It was the XJR5, the, the Tullius car, because I got to see that car come to fruition and in person, and covered it, and it was fantastic. But nothing will ever replace what I saw of the D-Types at Goodwood and in other places, Uh, now that I've seen more and more historic racing, the romance and the cars in a full four-wheel drift, and just the drivers, just there is nothing that will ever beat for me a Jaguar D-Type being driven with vengeance by a, a skilled driver just the thought of what those guys the skill that it took for those guys to survive 24 hours at le mans and to race as competitively as they did the d-type jaguar will always now be my favorite car of jaguar fame
3: well said mr roller because that was going to be my uh, my choice as well uh, the uh, the 1955 version with the wraparound screen um and I mean, on, on that note, I had uh, I had news yesterday that 774RW chassis XKD 505, the uh, the chassis that won at the Mans in 1955. He's going to be at the sheer hill climb this year. So that's right. going to be uh, yet another thing to look forward to. So um, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm going to be dribbling all over it on the 5th of <laughs> September. But No, uh, no photographs, or... please.
2: <laughs> well, of the car, yes, the dribbling. Yeah, yes. True, true, yeah.
3: Yeah, that's uh, a that's fair, fair comment. Well, that's it take, for, take our, for our Jack Using Competition special. Thank you all, gentlemen, very much indeed. Thank you for listening and uh, tuning into the Historic Racing News radio show. And from me, Paul Tarsi, it's a very good buy. And if you have been, thanks for listening.